Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We're so glad that you're joining us in person, online, those joining us online. It is, uh, it is just good to be with the people of God, celebrating the gospel, celebrating the goodness of God together here this morning. Why don't we pray and then we will uh, talk about what we're going to talk about. So let's pray. Father, gracious God, we are thankful to be able to come this morning to worship you as king, to confess our sin and rejoice in your righteousness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for Christ's atoning work on the cross. We thank you that he intercedes for us. We thank you that, Lord, he took our sin on himself, laid his righteousness on us, and that because of that, we have access to the throne of grace. We rejoice here this morning in the cross. We also think of the difficulties that many of us are facing, whether it's a tragedy, whether it's struggle that we're facing with, with sin, temptation, could be relational difficulties, whatever it is, Lord, we know that the cross, the gospel that you, Father, provide us with everything we need for life and godliness, that you, Father, Provide us with the answers, with the help. You provide us with what we need. And we're thankful that we get to be here together this morning to celebrate these things. And Lord, as we seek to understand your word here this morning, I pray that by your grace, you would give us boldness to confront our sin. As we humbly fear you, we turn to Christ for our hope and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 4, and then we're going to end our time in chapter 5. Just the beginning of chapter 5 here this morning. We've just journeyed with the apostles and with the early church through all kinds of events happening right from chapter 1 to this point. You got persecution, the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're seeing all kinds of wonders and miracles. And like I said, there was a little moment of interruption in the last chapter where we see this persecution that took place from outside of the church which then resulted in the prayer of boldness that we talked about last week. And if you haven't done so, I encourage you, go back to that portion of Scripture in chapter 4. Even um, reading through chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, and just contemplating (laughs) the amazing God that we do serve, and how these people, they were drawn to pray to the Lord with boldness for boldness in this way. And it's even a, it's even a, good, um, a good prayer for us to pray ourselves. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about a great celebration interrupted by a grave sin. A great celebration interrupted by a grave sin. 
I mean, we've all been there at times in life where things seem to be going well. Maybe even we're in like a celebratory moment. Like for the Leaf fans, that was Thursday night. Uh, everything's going well, but then last night happens. And I'm sorry, my condolences uh, to what happened with the Leafs last night. But we've all been there. We've had those celebratory moments, and then there's this interruption that takes place, maybe in that moment, in that season of life. And we're asked, we ask ourselves, you know, what's, what's going on here? It seems like this kind of came out of nowhere. Sometimes we're in a state of shock, maybe confusion when things like this happen, disbelief or even fear. You see, something like this kind of happens in today's passage. And it happened with the persecution taking place in chapter 4. And then, and then uh, they, they, they move into this prayer of boldness at the end of chapter 4. And then into 5, they're, um, uh, they're, they're this, this instance that just interrupts the nice, even flow of what's happening comes as a shock. This great celebration that takes place at the end of chapter 4 that we see the believers here and how they respond is in response to the work of the Holy Spirit, which brings us to likely one of the most disruptive passages in the New Testament, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I realized this week as I was studying that there's, in fact, there's no record of Charles Spurgeon uh, preaching even from this passage in his 60-some volumes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Series. See, when we're faced with what seems like an unnecessary interruption like we see here in today's passage, what seems to us is an unnecessary interruption in our life, sometimes it can bring out anxiety, confusion, anger, And those things are all natural human responses, but those things can sometimes be paralyzing to us. Are we going to allow those things to become paralyzing to us? You know, we're one year into a global pandemic. One year ago this weekend, David, we did your first sermon on video. If you want to go back and see the video quality, I think it's changed a little bit. Most churches would probably say the same. But one year ago, this weekend, we, we decided that it would be best for us not to meet together, and so we put the sermon online. And here we are a year later, and wow, I mean, a lot has happened. I mean, talk about interruption. So many things have changed, and consequently, so many of us have changed as well. But you know what's never changed? You know what never was interrupted? not even in the slightest, was the powerful work of the gospel. And that's been a theme that we've been drawing out of the book of Acts. That regardless of what's taking place in the world or what's taking place in our lives, the Lord is always working. He's, he's, he hasn't ceased to use his gospel to transform and change lives. And for us as believers, even though we might not be sensing or feeling or, 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 or we go through something like a pandemic and we're just convoluted and, and we're feeling all, uh, all, all like anxious and different things like that, even though we're in those, those dark moments of interruption in life, God is still working. That's really a remarkable message in the book of Acts. 
They're faced with interruption after interruption, but we see glorious and wonderful things still taking place. And in Acts 5, although this is a potentially great disruptive situation, it doesn't paralyze the church. God uses this to bring even his celebrating people to a celebratory reverence, and the church grows as the gospel is never interrupted, which brings me to the main thought of this morning. No sin, no failure, no circumstance or persecution will ever be able to slow down or stop the work of the gospel. No sin, failure, circumstance, or persecution can slow down or stop the work of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see from today's passage. So let's, let's read Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. And as I'm reading this, just be thinking through some of those themes that we talked about because we're going to be diving more into that. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead he held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. And there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds uh, of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And this was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one uh, the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and Keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it and after it was sold? Wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and a great fear came upon all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young man came in and found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband, then great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. Chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, we begin with this, with this great celebration that's taking place. 
There's a lot that's going on here in these verses. And, and what we see happening in these verses is that really the believers are celebrating the generosity that they have experienced from God himself. God has not just saved them from their sins and from eternity separated from him, but now uh, here they're in this, uh, they've, they've just gone through this persecution. They've entered into this uh, point where there is this prayer of boldness. And then this results in this radical generosity that we see in these verses towards others. They're celebrating the generosity of God by showing generosity to others. Something very similar to this happened in chapter 2, if you remember. And in both occasions, it was after a dramatic experience which resulted in this radical sharing and this radical caring for one another. This is really a record of the church's response to God's grace and His goodness. And in verse 32, where we're first confronted with how this generosity gripped their hearts with such a firm hold. If you look with me in verse 32, now the entire group of those who believed, so all of the believers, the entire group, were of one heart and mind. They were of one heart and mind. And being of one heart and mind, what's the logical conclusion? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Verse 33 gives us insight into how they understood God's generosity a little further. It says this, With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was, all, was on all of them. You see, these are people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good which brought them to this place of prayerful boldness in chapter 4 and then resulted in this radical generosity at the end of chapter 4. So when we come to verse 33, we begin to realize that the natural thing for a unified, gospel-transformed people around the testimony of Christ's resurrection is to celebrate. And how to celebrate God's sacrificial, selfless, undeserving generosity? You celebrate by showing generosity to others. These verses are descriptive. They're not prescriptive in the way that no one here is expected to do exactly what they happen here, but I think those principles of generosity should be something that just grips our heart because we know God who has been greatly generous to us. You know, for these believers, it was a no-brainer. Sell everything, give it to the church so that wealth could be distributed and there wouldn't be the slightest need among them. Talk about caring for each other. You know, this isn't done begrudgingly. They do so joyfully. And Barnabas, in verses 36 to 37, becomes this chief example of how this happens. A narrative like this should really catch our attention. They were truly living out Christ's teaching with their generosity, devoted to prayer, Committed to the apostles' ministry and teaching, they voluntarily share with each other. You know, imagine what people are going to say about the church when we come out of the pandemic. 
You know, here are people in this passage who just lived through this traumatic experience with persecution. And they had every right to fight back, to go after the system. But instead, they gather together, they pray, and they focus on the ministry of the gospel. And from that flows this radical generosity and care that they show one another. With the challenges that that we face today, we're also given this opportunity to respond. We should ask ourselves, has my response been consistent? My response to what's happening in today being consistent with the teaching of Christ? Is my response a, a selfless, gracious, caring, focused on the gospel? Or am I taking up all of my attention or maybe others' attention on focusing on other things? Is my response focusing on unity despite differences and comfort levels? Or is my response focused on the things I think are important rather than what Christ is saying is important during a time such as this? We become generous with others because we have much to celebrate in the generosity of God. How amazing would it be for our community if after the pandemic, the com- our community would look at the church, not just our church, but the church at the end of this pandemic and see this gospel transform people and think, wow, what a generous people. That's a group I would love to be a part. They are unified, one heart, one mind, sharing all the good things of God, sharing all the good things that they've been blessed with together with one another. There's no needs in that community because people are meeting the needs. People are caring for one another. Imagine our community just looking at the church and being able to say that at the end of this. Well, where does it start? Well, for a guy like Barnabas, for these believers, it started with their heart. And we're going to see a very different heart response here in just a moment. The generosity of Barnabas actually caught Ananias and Sapphira's attention, which brings us to this abrupt, what seems like an abrupt interruption in this story. A great celebration is interrupted by grave sin. Grave sin interrupts this great celebration, this moment of generosity taking place. You know, chapter 4 really prepares us for this moment in this passage. And up to this point, Satan had attempted to damage the church and the gospel from the outside through persecution, through threats. But now he's launching an attack on the inside of the church. Ananias and Sapphira, likely being inspired by what Barnabas did, were likely thinking, hey, we could do the same thing. Just just think about how generous and spiritual we would look if we did that as well. But we'll hold back on some of the proceeds. We'll say we did it, but we won't really do it. I think there are three big things that we can take away from from this passage as the Spirit works in our own hearts 
Three big things. The first thing is this. It was a problem of the heart. Ananias and Sapphira's problem was that it was a problem of the heart. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. Twice the, the, the state of their hearts is mentioned. Peter mentions it. Look with me in verse 3. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of that land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. The problem was that this premeditated, planned lie wasn't just to this group of people, but because it was an assault on the unity of the gospel-transformed community, it was lying to God. Ananias and Sapphira, interestingly enough, were never instructed to sell their land. They wanted to do this to make themselves look better than they really were. And these actions became this stark contrast between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, this what might seem as an interruption. Their actions, this stark contrast from the Holy Spirit-filled actions of the believers in chapter 4 to how they respond in chapter 5. Instead of the Spirit of God uniting their hearts and directing them to generosity, Peter points out that Satan had, let, had been let in to rule and reign in their hearts. They brought deceit and self-glory to a place where only truth was to exist. I mean, this hypocrisy really gives us all something to consider and think about. As a side note, I, I believe that we have little reason to believe that Ananias and Sapphira uh, would be Christians with the presence of Satan in their hearts, the decisions that they made would leave us to understand that they most likely weren't believers. And what's more is that their hearts were in such a deceitful state, which at times we can find ourselves in a, in a similar state. Their hearts were in such a deceitful state that they both had ample opportunity to speak the truth, but they refused. See, the text tells us that they determined their course of action and they followed through. In verse 8, Peter gives, it's really a moment of grace on Peter's part. Peter gives Sapphira, this opportunity to make things right. And I'd love to be able to say that she does, but just look at what she does here in verse 8. Tell me, Peter asks her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why do you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? You see, the text reveals that their heart was, was bent on doing what they wanted. The problem wasn't the enemy of persecution of the day. The problem wasn't the enemy of culture of the day. The problem was their own hearts. This goes back to 
Jeremiah's revelation in Jeremiah 17.9 just reminds us that the heart is deceitful above anything else, Jeremiah says, and incurable. Who can understand it? And we know that Jesus is the answer to that question that Jeremiah poses. Who can understand it? Well, Jesus can understand it. Being the one who subdues the heart of man, turning a heart of stone out of uh, into a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, transforming the Christian from the inside out. Jesus can understand it. But we can be guilty of seeing the outside world as the greatest threat to the church. The government as the greatest threat to the church. The signs and the times that Jesus says we can see as the greatest threat to the church. But what does he say? He's got all those things under control and we're not to worry or concern ourselves with those things. But we're to do what? What the believers did here. In verse 4, in chapter 4, their hearts were turned to the Holy Spirit. Boldness resulted in generosity. But you see, Ananias and Sapphira sold their hearts, allowed their hearts to steep in sin, sold their, basically sold their hearts to Satan. You know, culture is not our greatest enemy. The government is not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is within. It's our hearts. Yeah, sure, there might be circumstances or, or things that might reveal the heart. And the Bible says that what's inside comes out. The circumstances of our life reveal what's truly inside. Jesus talks a lot about this. So my question to us this morning is, how is your heart? Is it a spirit-led heart that is committed to truth, grace, generosity, and unity? Or are you experiencing in your heart anger, deceit, lust, sin? By this, by his generosity, by his sacrifice and atonement, Jesus came to transform your heart and mind. If you were having a conversation with Peter like Ananias is, what would that reveal about your own heart? I mean, we can fool others. We can fool the church. Obviously, you can't fool an apostle. But you, we can fool, we can fool pastors. We can fool church leadership. We can fool our spouse teens, children, you can fool your parents. You can do all kinds of fooling. Fool your friends, but praise God because Jesus reveals our hearts and there is absolutely no way that we can fool him. Absolutely no way. The state of Ananias and Sapphira's heart resulted here in death. It resulted in death. So their heart the state of their heart resulted in death. And first Ananias dies, and then Sapphira dies. And, you know, sin always has consequences. And that's what we're reminded of here in this instance. Sin always has consequences. What happens here is really a fulfillment of the Romans 6.23 promise that the wages of sin is death. Our sin will always cost something. Ultimately, in a, 
in a spiritual sense, it'll cause eternal, the eternal wrath of God through death. But Jesus has generously stepped in to take on the consequences of our sin for us. He freely offers his gift of salvation, laying on himself our iniquity and the wrath of God, laying on us his righteousness as we prayed earlier. But for Ananias and Sapphira, this lie, this sin of lying to the Holy Spirit and to the church revealed their true spiritual fate of death that ended in their life here on earth. Sin always has consequences. There is no sin that goes unpunished. And as as fearful we're going to see as that is, it's also a place of rest to just think about. No sin goes unpunished. There is no abuse that goes without consequences. There is nothing that has been done to you or that you've done to somebody else that there isn't going to be a consequence for. That the Spirit of God, that the justice of God isn't going to see to that true justice is taken. And the choice becomes, will his wrath and justice lay on us for all eternity in hell? Or are we going to accept that free offer of grace from Jesus? It wasn't really free. I mean, it cost him everything. It's free to us. It cost him his blood, his body. Are we going to accept that free offer of grace? As Jesus steps in and he says, let me take that wrath for you. You see, this resulted in death, but it also renewed this godly fear. Look at the response of the church to what's going on. Verse 4, Peter says, you have not lied to people, but to God. When we heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried it out, and buried him. Then, verse 11, after Sapphira also, also drops dead, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. You know, there are four times in our passage today that we see the word great. First, we see great power, the great power of the apostles. And then we also see the great grace and generosity of God in chapter 4, verse 33. And then now we see the great fear in verses 5 and 11. This fear that grips the heart of the church as they witness the power and the justice of this generous God that they've been celebrating. This would have been a shocking, sobering, and even a humbling, fear-filled moment. All of a sudden, they're reminded of the reality of God's holiness the great grace he must have for them and not exercising and displaying that same justice on them as he did with Ananias and Sapphira. We've all heard Proverbs 9.10, which says, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. In other words, the fear that the church here is experiencing is not a bad fear. It is a good fear. 
It's a spiritually healthy fear. It's a necessary fear. John Bunyan puts the fear of God this way. He said, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and they that lack the beginning have no middle or end. The fear of God is one that is only right for us to have as believers. That God, being all-knowing and all-powerful, will be so good and merciful to sinners like us, sinners that don't deserve His grace but deserve His wrath, that this God would send His Son in our place. And that we would join these people in Acts chapter 4 in celebrating such a good and generous God. There's a question that can surround passages like this. The question is, why was God so severe? Why was God so severe? You know, sometimes we can look at a story like this and wonder, where is God's grace in this story? I would argue, it's all throughout this story. But I think there's three things that we can just consider as we consider why was God so severe? Just three, three things here this morning. God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. He takes sin seriously because he is holy, because he wants to have communion with us, and because sin can't coexist with holiness, he takes sin so seriously that he knew that we would never be able to deal with our sin but that he would have to send Jesus, his son, to brutally die on the cross and to rise again from the dead for our sin. And he takes sin so seriously because he takes his love for us so seriously. He takes sin so seriously that he disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us this. His discipline really is an act of loving grace to his children. And because of his holiness and, and his love for us, he takes sin so seriously that there is nothing that anyone, again, has ever done to you or against you or that you could do that is, that is ignored by his justice. All sin will come under the justice of God. And he takes sin so seriously because he takes his holiness seriously and he takes the cross seriously. Ananias and Sapphira's action was an attempt at defiling the people of God and therefore the purity of the message of the gospel. And he takes sin so seriously because he hates it. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, Psalm 11, 5 Psalm 5, 5. And if we are going to have a fear of God that leads to the wisdom of redemption, receiving that good gift from Jesus who died in our place, and also the fear of God that leads to change and transformation, being part of this community of believers in unity of one mind, of one heart, serving one another in generosity. If we're going to have the kind of fear that manifests truthfulness in our unity with each other, we need to hate sin too. Oh, Lord, that we would hate sin as much as you hate it. 
We would see the seriousness of sin. It's also a pivotal time. Why is God so severe? Well, it's a pivotal time also in church history. Pastor Byron mentioned earlier of another rare occurrence we see in Scripture from Joshua chapter 5 or 7, but the story of Achan. You see, at this point in the infancy stages of the New Testament church, and back in Joshua chapter 7, in the infancy stages of Israel taking possession of the land and all those wonderful, amazing, glorious things happening at that time. At this point, the infancy stages of the New Testament church, this, this kind of deception would have spread like cancer pretty quickly. We, we hear Paul's warning to Timothy in 2 Timothy when he warns about Hymenaeus and Philetus and their spreading of deceitful and godless arguments that was like gangrene in the church and to be avoided. So why was God so severe? He's protecting the purity of his church. It was necessary because of the point in time in history that the church was really gaining ground but then also, we see that this was an attack on the unity of the church. Truthfulness is essential to unity. Truthfulness is essential to unity. Ephesians 4, 25 puts it this way, Therefore, putting away lying, speak truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members, we are unified of one another. A truthful community is going to be a unified community. A lying community, there won't be unity. Zechariah 8, 16 and 17 talks about a similar thing. These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true the sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. And do not love perjury. For I hate all this. This is the Lord's declaration. It was an attack on the unity of the church. God takes unity seriously. He takes sin seriously. He takes unity seriously, especially the unity of his church, because the church is a representation of the gospel. Because in doing so, the church is not just a representation of the gospel, but a representation of the Trinity, of the Godhead. And if, and if at any point there wasn't unity within the Trinity, I mean, he'd cease, I mean, well, existence would probably cease, cease to be, but uh, there, there wouldn't be the gospel. There wouldn't be God who created us. There wouldn't be anything. Unity is essential. It's essential for the Trinity. It's essential for the gospel. And it's essential for the church. And truth is essential for unity. And so this lie from Ananias and Sapphira was an attack on that unity. But where does this take us? Just does Acts end with Ananias, Sapphira, they're dead. And then a great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things is just end there? Well, no. Next week we're going to get into where it takes us but this leads us to our, our final point, which is the work of the gospel went on. It didn't stop. 
although there was this interruption and what we might see as like an inconvenient interruption and in a fearful one, we see that God uses that interruption to what? Bring this godly fear among these believers. But also we see that the gospel does not stop. It goes on in verse 12. I love it just like makes this shift uh, into verse 12. So after it says, then great fear came on the whole church and all those who heard these things. Then verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colony. It's almost like Ananias and Sapphira, well, guess what? The main point is this. The work of the gospel goes on. It goes on. It's important to mention this. The story of Ananias and Sapphira becomes this difficult interruption to life, but it's a reminder that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what is going on around the globe, in the ordinary daily grind and the challenges of life, no matter what is happening, none of these things can interfere with the true grace giving work of God with the gospel in your life and around the world. You might not feel like he's working in your life, but he is. You might look at a situation like this Ananias and Sapphira situation and think, well, what's happening here? But then this great godly fear comes upon you or this, or this grace in some other way, or this generosity, everything that the church was experiencing at this time comes upon you. And God is using that for something bigger and greater than we expect. But we understand this. We know this, that the work of the gospel continues regardless. Our troubles are no trouble for the love of God and the pursuit of the gospel. Your sin, your struggle, your temptation does not stop Jesus from offering newness of life to you through the gospel, through repenting and trusting him to save you. The work continues, as it always does. Guess what? This past year, in the pandemic, the work continued, and it's going to. It's going to, whether we're here or not, it's going to continue, because it's God's message, because he takes sin seriously, because he loves us. He loves the people that he redeems, and he loves his son, and he loves his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. In conclusion, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a call for us to confront our own heart deception. To confront what we might be deceiving others or deceiving ourselves. Maybe the deception is, is that you're putting on this, on this facade, kind of like what Ananias and Sapphira are, that you know, you're saved, you're a Christian, but really deep down inside you know you're not. That is fatal deception. And I encourage you, I plead with you, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Because we see also from this passage, habits of deceit and sin are easily formed and hard to break. However, Jesus wants to change us by his grace, wants to change us. So let's commit to being a spirit-led people full of truth, grace, generosity, and committed to unity, trusting and knowing that no sin, no failure, no circumstance, or persecution will ever be able to slow down or stop the work of the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your great generosity. We thank you for your great holiness and that with you exists no sin. We thank you for Jesus that you would look at sinners like us understanding that our sin needs to be paid for if we're going to have communion and fellowship, if we're going to dwell with you and you would send Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice. Father, I pray that we would see our sin the way you do, that we would take sin seriously. But Lord, as we're confronted with the reality of your sin, we're reminded of the amazing gift of your grace. Lord, I pray for us here that if there is deceit in our hearts, that you would give us boldness and strength to deal with it. That we would come to you in repentance. That you would point it out. That we would willingly submit to your spirit as these people did in Acts 4. Father, I pray that if there's any of us who maybe we've been pretending to do the Christian thing, whatever it might be. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us to a point of humble repentance before you. That if there's those here who have not repented of their sin, trust you for salvation, that they would do so today. Today is the day of salvation. We thank you for your word of truth, even for hard stories like this. pray that we'd be a people of great fear and great generosity. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.